Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the Ganatantra podcast. This is Sariyunat Rajan and this is Alok Prasanna Kumar. Thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. For those who are just getting familiar with the Ganatantra podcast, thank you for your patience and Uh, That is for our long-term listeners as well. Thank you for continuing to tune in and listen. Today, we have a very interesting discussion lined up. We are joined by the author of The Great Repression, The Story of Sedition in India, Chitranshul Sinha. Chitranshul is an author and a lawyer, and he's the author of this book, of course, The Great Sedition, which is a wonderful read on the history of sedition law in India, which is contained in section 124A of the Indian Penal Code. Uh, and for those who want to geek out, section 124A reads, whoever by words either spoken or written, or by signs, or by visible representation or otherwise, brings or attempts to bring into hatred or contempt or excites or attempts to excite disaffection towards the government established by law in India, shall be punished with imprisonment for life, to which fine may be added, or with imprisonment, which may extend to three years, to which a fine may be added, or with fine. Anshu's book traces the history of the law and explores its use from colonial times when it was used to keep the independence movement in check. He also examines its contemporary use and how it's enmeshed into the mindsets and capacities of the police force today and reflects on its future as well. The legality of Section 124A is in question in court now, and there has been some hopeful, and uh, yet Anshul argues uh, it's inadequate as well. Uh, There's an order on that, uh, but more on that soon, hopefully, in the course of this discussion. Uh, First of all, welcome, Anshul. Thank you for having me, guys. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. But, uh, you know, before we jump into a deeper discussion of the book itself, I uh, would love to hear from your perspective, uh, you know, both your about your journey and what got you into wanting to think about sedition a little bit more. See, to be honest, I have never been a constitutional or a criminal lawyer in that sense. I've always been a commercial lawyer, a civil lawyer, as the broader categories of a civil lawyer. But uh, I started writing sometime in 2017. I started writing on and off uh, some articles for some publications. So uh, someone from Penguin, who's a very dear friend, uh, just told me out of the blue, sitting in my uh, room with my wife, and she just said, you should write a book. And I said, I don't know how to do that. I don't know what to write on. She's like, no, no, you will write a book. And then I don't know how how things just fell into place. And... um, Sort of the Penguin guys, uh, they made that suggestion that you should write on sedition. So I started looking into it because, to be honest, when they told me you should write on this one particular provision, I was like, okay, fine, I'll write two pages and it'll be over. What will you write beyond that? And this one, this is just one section of the entire IPC. But as I started researching, as I started reading, I just realized that this subject is not just, it's not not a not a not something that you can write just two or ten pages about. It's it's huge. Because to understand sedition, you have to understand the history of sedition. Without that, you will not be able to understand how this law is on the books today. And that how it came into India of all places, even though it was not codified in English law. 
so there are a lot of things that went into it and i realized it's 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 not an easy journey and then it could took me a good one year one year two months to write it but yeah it was fun right uh, so thank you so much for that i think that uh, that sort of tells us both sort of how much uh, there is to know about various sections in the indian penal code um, and also in the history and the politics of the independence movement in its own way uh, but anshul could you walk us and our listeners through uh, the main arguments of the book as well um, and you know would love to hear from your perspective the journey of the provision uh, in the indian code Yeah, so uh, very interestingly, under any vernacular language, I'm sure I'm not. I don't know all languages in India, but I'm fairly certain that uh, these languages do not have a word for sedition. They have words for things like uh, deshdro means, like in Hindi, at least I can say deshdro means uh, treason, things like that. But I, 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 other languages have similar words, but there's no particular word for sedition as such. because this word did not exist in india it this, this this offense did not exist in india even before the indian penal code was enacted loosely speaking uh, before the east india company uh, came in and started taking over parts of india or rather we gave away parts of india they came in with their own regulations for particular uh, regions wherever their presidencies were established uh, but the other regions had a mix of law uh, being uh, applied locally like for criminal law mostly islamic law was being applied and for civil law it was mostly hindu law which was applied there was no set provision it was upon the ruler of the day the chief of the day who who would uh, apply the law accordingly so there was no one penal code for the all of india and so macaulay was a uh, commission like i if i may say so the first law commission was created and macaulay was the chief of the commission and he was commissioned to codify indian laws and the first thing that he took up was the indian penal code and for that he in his notes he says that he spoke to a lot of people he saw a lot of laws but mostly it was based on english laws there was no such uh, there were no such laws in india at that time except the regulations the bombay regulations or the bengal regulations or the madras regulations and so and most of all he did the entire work himself technically there were more people on the commission but he did all of the work himself because some of them never visited india some of them were throughout sick wherever whenever they were in india so they could not act because of their health so macaulay more or less did this single handedly and when he drafted it provision it was it was it was forgotten after that it was more or less the same as as how it was introduced in uh, in 1870 but uh, it, it it sort of it just remained the same way despite being in limbo for 30 odd years 35 odd years so this law was in fact then then uh, this law was in fact uh, brought into 1817 into the penal code even though it was not part of the original penal code and it was brought in mostly because of the wahhabis there was a wahhabi movement across northern india and the wahhabi movement was not an what not a nationalist movement it was more of a religious movement it was more of a movement uh, earlier it used to be against the sikhs then its focus moved to the british so it was mostly they 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 imagined a islamist india islamic india in that sense that wahhabi movement the wahhabi india if i may say so so this was brought in essentially because of the wahhabi movement and offenses which are happening across patna dhaka lahore lot of trials were held so barns peacock 
was the person who actually brought it into the code. It is credited mostly to Stephens, but it Brands Peacock is actually responsible for actually bringing it into the code. And that is when the uh, provision against the offense of sedition was first introduced into the Indian Penal Code. So this leads us to an interesting point in this uh, discussion, Anshul. And perhaps one thing which we perhaps should clarify for a lot of uh, listeners outside the country also is that India was an experiment in codification yeah. of laws. Yeah. Uh, the, a lot, and this is something which only occurred to me much later while I was practicing as a lawyer, is that British, uh, it's not as if the British imported their legislation yeah. into India. They used India as a testing bed for a lot of their yeah. legislation. And I think the Indian Penal Code was perhaps the first big example of that. Yeah, yeah. So essentially, even in England, it started with Bentham. And uh, then he was sort of shunned from England. He moved to France. He moved to America. It was, he was just, he, and he, his first experiment, I think, was in France, but it did not succeed there. But then the school of thought that emerged from Bentham and his disciples going on to Macaulay, they saw India as a place where they could actually bring together a certain set of laws because it was a, it was a large territory. You cannot govern a, such a large territory with various laws. It would not be uniform all over. And even that experiment, in a sense, it, 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 they drafted something initially, but it was not actually imposed till after the crown took over the government of India. So, yes, it was an experiment. And Stephen, in fact, tried to create a criminal code for England. But again, that also that failed there. That didn't happen there. In India, we, and we, to be honest, I'm not a colonialist. But to be honest, I'm, we are very fortunate to have the criminal code and the penal code and the civil code. Because otherwise, it would have become very complex. Because India being so diverse, we have very different set of thoughts, very different thoughts, uh, beliefs behind, uh, behind procedure. Like in the Northeast, if you would go, like I recently wrote about a place called Kolhan in Jharkhand, which still does not uh, have any civil procedure code. There are places in the Northeast and the tribal areas where they do not recognize these sort of legal systems. So India was an experiment. I would like to say, I don't know how much you guys will agree with me or not, but I would like to say that this codification in India has actually succeeded. Unlike in other places, it has actually succeeded. And if I have to take a very particular parameter of that success, uh, one is, of course, it got exported. Uh, you find variants of the Indian Penal Code yeah. in countries as diverse as Nigeria, yeah. all the way to Singapore and Malaysia and beyond. Yeah. Um, and you find very similar provisions. For those of you who are not Indian listeners, the 419 scam actually comes from Section 419 and 420 of the Indian Penal Code with slight changes in numbering, uh, which deals with cheating and fraud. Uh, some of you may have come across this in the context of email scams and frauds. Um, the other perhaps parameter of success is how little there has been a need to change some of the substantive provisions of this, right? We see yeah. that the definition of murder, and I think this is the most popular one, Section 302 of the Indian Penal Code, for 160 years hasn't changed. I mean, there have been lots of judgments People have lots of cases have come up, but nobody has yet come up with a definition of murder, which even 10% of people can agree is better than what we have on the law. Yeah. But I want to come to one other point, Chitranshal, uh, and I think this is something which, which needs to be placed a little bit in historical context before we go into the sedition aspect of things. The idea that the government would be limited by laws, I think that is one important point that I think 
sometimes gets missed in our in discussions about this because the code of civil procedure the code of criminal procedure especially and the indian penal code mean that even the government has to follow these provisions of law before they kind of make some uphold someone criminally responsible for an act yeah so uh, see uh, unlike the unlike england where the crown was sort of the head of the political system and the parliament uh, ruled in india at that point of time even though the crown was sitting in england in india we had a government which was controlled from or rather remote control like this popular term is nowadays remote controlled from abroad and even then this is this is this is my theory of course this is my theory that they would always want their own representatives to act within a system to act within a structure rather than give them a free hand because they do not they don't want to lose control of the bureaucracy control of the administrative systems in india and britain even before all what it did it considered itself a civilized state even though earlier i am talking about the time of the nandakumar case they had the death penalty for forgery so you had death penalty for forgery but you considered yourself a civilized state so they sort of thought that they were doing the natives a favor by giving them a system and being benevolent uh, benevolent rulers in a sense that okay fine i'm ruling you i'm i'm imposing all sorts of uh, draconian revenue systems on you but see i'm making the government accountable to the parliament there or to the crown there you have a system to work with this has extended beyond independence also but now it's debatable how much the government is actually working within that system or working around that system anymore i, I really don't know what it is anymore <laughs> that's true and before we get to that there are a couple of other things and i think sedition because the provision has been around for such a long period of time i think it's worth sort of going through a little bit its immediate pre independence history post independence history and of course this provision i suppose a lot of us have heard the stories of it before we actually read it ever because of the number of freedom fighters the number of uh, people in the independence movement who were jailed who were in some way uh or you know uh, either tormented by it in some way perhaps you can talk a little bit about the independence experience of uh, the sedition yeah so uh when sedition was first uh, the first case for sedition was actually in 1891 it was more than 20 years after the law was introduced and it came from a newspaper publication in west bengal and uh, and today's west bengal of course and then bengal and it's called the bongobasi what the article was in fact was again what a criticism i would say it would it could be a harsh criticism but it was a criticism of the age of consent law and it's very it's very interesting because at that time the age of consent for girls used to be 10 years and uh, you, you the you, uh, me, me, uh, the man was allowed to consummate marriage when the girl was 10 and they were increasing it from 10 to 12 and that was seen as an attack on the hindu culture of india hindu culture of bengal or bombay and even though reformers like tilak they were all for increasing the age of consent they did not want the government to do it they wanted reforms internal they wanted the the society to do it itself rather than getting an external force to do it for them because tilak for whatever his views were he was a reformer in the sense of that period but others were not as uh, as moderate about it as tilak was they were militant about it and they saw it as an affront to the entire system so they wrote articles criticizing the law 
and the first trial was in fact against uh, that it it ended in an acquittal it ended in mistrial and acquittal later but so the so going back to the, the to the offense itself see sedition in england was not seen as an offense individually like it was not sedition individually it could have been uh, it could be seditionary language used seditionary defamation or seditionary acts in india sedition has more or less been seen as a true england uh, english history as a act of defaming the government but the difference here is that the act of defaming the government doesn't have truth as a defense unlike if i defame a person but i have the truth as defense but if i'm defaming the government and it gives sort of rise to hatred against the government or feelings of disloyalty against the government that's good enough for the offense of sedition to be invoked and that was very very strictly uh, interpreted when the law came in that simply causing or rather inciting disloyalty and hatred against the government is sufficient for the act of sedition to be uh, invoked against a person like tilak's first trial he he wrote articles criticizing the government's uh, role in curbing the plague in pune and uh, the commissioner of pune got uh, assassinated they directly linked it to his speeches and and his writing which were given during the the uh, the ganesh chaturthi vidya the shiva the at i'm forgetting the place shiv shivgarh i'm forgetting so i'm so sorry i'm forgetting the place but at uh, the festivals he gave certain speeches and they linked it directly to the assassination of rand and they said that it was because of what all he said he is uh, guilty of sedition so he he tried to defend it he said it is just an honor, criticism of the government step because what they were doing in punawa they were just pulling people out burning houses and they were destroying property saying that plague is spreading you need to just evacuate everyone people thought of it as a land grab as a property grab by the british and so and the british thought that this this is sufficient to invo- invoke sedition against him again things against the chapekar brothers so i'm sorry I'm, i just lost my train of thought a little bit uh i can no worry we let it we let it yeah go back we let it from yeah so uh, so yeah sedition was initially imposed very very strictly interpreted very very strictly and in fact uh, even for the trials of gandhi nehru so but till just before independence there was a judgment which said that simply giving seditionary statements is not sufficient it should either incite violence or should have the tendency to incite violence for it to become an offense of sedition but this was quickly overruled by the free privy council they said no no nothing doing we are not going to give people that leeway to interpret this law we have to interpret implemented very very strictly there the freedom movement is very strong we have to implement it very strictly this must be have been the thought process and uh, so they again curbed the the interpretation that a judge could have given to make it very very strict so that is how the position was still independence post independence the questions came up before various high courts talahabad high court punjab high court patna high court sikkim high court and it culminated into the judgment of the supreme court in the kedarnath singh case in 1960 where they gave a judgment which said that the public order or rather the public disorder test has to be read into the law that if it incites violence or has a tendency to incite violence then it can be the offense of sedition can be imposed but unfortunately they did not they do not define what public order or disorder is to that extent 
so what is violence if if i if i give a statement and people go and uh, and 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 damage some park benches or street lights that is violence but is that sedition it's not so the test or rather how it should be tested against whether we are a democratic society today is the government as brittle that an act of uh, vandalizing few hoardings or few parks can it bring down this government no it cannot a public disorder every public disorder following a speech is not sedition but that test was not laid down so it's given given a lot of room for interpretation over the years and it's been abused in some cases it's and in some cases supreme court has come down and said that no certain things are not sedition simply carrying arms is not sedition simply being part of a uh, maoist organization is not sedition so this and the government till very recently can i go into this now the government till very recently tried to save this provision when the challenge came up before the supreme court the government said that they will lay down parameters on what the what uh, the police authorities in various states can do and not do under section 124 and the supreme court said that we cannot leave it up to you the supreme court said that we are passing an order but we are requesting you not to implement it there was no order staying the provision there was no order injuncting the police from filing fires under 124a but they said that uh, whoever is uh, facing uh, the provision today facing trial today should be given bail if uh, something new is registered then immediately bail should be given instead of saying no no fir can be registered and they in fact told the government that now you go back now you see what you want to do with the law then we'll look at it so today the law is in a limbo today nobody knows what's going to happen with the change of government something changes with the change of the law minister something changes or the home minister something changes nobody knows where the law is going today the the hearing was supposed to be held in july but it's still not happened so let's see where it goes yeah thanks thanks uh, anshul and i think you made a very important point here which i think i want to bring a little bit to the pre independence context also which is the police yeah. uh, and i think uh, one thing that i sort of wanted to talk a little bit about is the fact that the police in india were not like say a force to enforce the legitimacy for democratically elected government the police in india right uh, going down to the uniforms that they wear khaki which was military uniforms uh, to the structure and training uh, as i mean then like let's start in the pre independence context it was still seen as the police force to keep the natives quiet uh perhaps you can talk a little bit about the interaction between the way the police function and this kind of sedition law which is on the books still at the moment yeah so uh, along with this ipc the indian penal code there is a criminal uh, procedure code section 196 of the criminal procedure code provides a certain safeguard uh it says that the court can only take cognizance of uh, for an offense of sedition if the state or the central government sanctions such a uh, such cognizance or permits the prosecution for such a offense but uh, what cognizance essentially means is that when charges are filed by the court or by the police i'm using very uh, common terms here when charges are filed by the police and the court has to actually see whether it has to frame charges for trial or not that is the time when the court actually takes cognizance of Uh, offense under section 124a so while there is a safeguard provided i don't know how good or bad that safeguard is or how effective it is today but uh, while there is a safeguard from taking cognizance there is no safeguard from arresting people or while registering fir's 
So a constable today who's respond who's sitting in a small police station in uh, Jharkhand can to still today register a case under 124 IA against a tribal who's trying to assert his land rights, which has happened in Jharkhand. And I'm just giving a tribal's example, but it's the movement in Jharkhand. And there are policemen on record in Jharkhand and Tamil Nadu against the nuclear plant. There was a movement. There are policemen on record saying that they invoked the uh, provision to create fear amongst the population. Because there's no there's no guideline when a when a FIR can be registered under 124A. It was only in the Asim Trivedi case in Maharashtra that the High Court gave certain guidelines that uh, a law officer or a police commissioner has to first give his report whether such an offense is made out or not. Only then you can register an offense. But there's no, there's no such pan-India guideline. So today, a, a simple constable sitting in a small police station can register your offense against you. And as the, the procedure is the punishment, we keep saying this, we keep shouting hoarse that the procedure is the punishment. A poor tribal does not have the means to get lawyers to get bail. So he'll be sitting in uh, custody, he'll be in prison for as long as the police wants him to be. And so today, what was a weapon of the colonial police has become a weapon of a democratic police force. Because at the end of the day, the hangover still exists. We, the police still feel they're the masters of the population. That hangover is still there. So the weapon is still there. The tools are different. The weapon is still there. No, that's a, a fascinating way of putting it and, you know, very much brings... Uh into light the you know the questions of the way in which the police itself in india function uh, but you know there's there's something exceptional about sedition or the exceptional about this provision it is one of very many colonial era laws that remain on the books uh, but i you know would love to hear your reflections a little bit more on what it is that sets sedition apart because it lies at the intersection of the state sort of feeling insecure about itself you know a procedure that can punish a sort of vague offense uh, but would you know love your reflections on it as well yeah so uh, section 124a falls within a chapter which is offense against the state that same uh, chapter has offenses like waging war against the state but uh, what is essentially happening today is that even when there is no offense against the state in a strict sense uh, police forces in various states uh, use this as a as a as a tool to uh, repress civil society if i may put it that way and uh, again sorry again lost my train of thought i was going somewhere and then completely okay can you just come back to the question again yeah sorry sorry so sorry uh, your reflections on why section 124a is exceptional if at all yeah. it is yeah yeah so as i was saying so it's an offense against the state and uh, while uh, till the time there are offenses against the state and the state has the power to prosecute people and civil society for that, it's convenient for every government to have such offenses on the books, whether they use it or not use it is something different. The Congress was the only party, I think, which came out and said they will repeal the provision. But they've also been guilty of uh, using the provision as a tool. And after the UAPA came in, the UAPA sort of made this even stricter. They have more or less the same language in defining uh, defining activities, unlawful activities under UAPA. At the same time, they have 124A. So they have parallel offenses. And the, all governments want such offenses because 
thing may be hunky dory with your citizenship today the, the, you you may be everyone's the beloved government but it everything unravels very quickly at times and at that time you need certain blunt forces blunt objects to hit your citizenry with so that is why governments i think would not i i still do not think anybody will repeal sedition unless the court actually steps in and does something right no i wonder and i think also with the rise of uh, nationalistic politics everywhere and uh, a certain amount of perception of uh, insecurity amongst governments the uh, or the odds of uh, such a provision being repealed repealed might be sort of uh, on the lower side but you know there's another thing that i've always been wondering about and perhaps it's a naive question uh, but the nature of sedition uh, in and of itself um, in the contemporary era is somewhat or ha- is is sort of recast particularly with the availability of technology and the way it disseminates the spread of information is there something to think about here particularly with respect to provisions around liability for intermediaries or those disseminating information because the the way in which these notions of fomenting hatred or inciting action some of the language that the provision itself uses or language around it has evolved uh, what happens of that in this uh, in this day and age because there are competing interests at play in the sense that you know platforms etc interested in the dissemination of such information um whereas a lot of the uh, you know the navigation around such disaffectation can be managed through sort of keeping information contained so i you know just inviting your reflections on this uh, this tussle yeah so earlier well, even pre independence what would happen is that uh, the author of the of a article a seditionary article and the publication the editor of the publication would also be pulled into the prosecution uh now essentially with the digital media coming in you don't have like physical papers everywhere you have something published by let's say the quint in uh, delhi or the indian express online but a person sitting in kanyakumari is reading it at the same time as a person sitting in delhi is reading it and what has happened uh, of of late is that uh, even though i may be writing sitting and writing in delhi someone who is offended in uh, in tamil nadu will can file an fir in tamil nadu against me and not only against me it could be for a tweet which is on twitter or a post which is on facebook and the trend is to pull the platforms into prosecution as well they are also people are trying to curb free thought on social media by pulling in the platforms into the proceedings because then what will essentially happen is that and what is happening in now is that the, these platforms are taking down posts when the government asks them to to in, in order to save themselves from any prosecution and just throwing the author or throwing the original poster to the wolves in a, in that sense so yes with digital age coming in it's become more easy to for people to be harassed in different corners of the country and as well as it's time for the platform also to think about how it is going to tackle whether it whether it wants to pro, pro, proceed being a neutral platform which it it can but it's, it's all commerce today it can but nobody wants to be shut down everyone wants ad revenue it can but then what happens because the, there's no safeguard in law today there's no safeguard it's only certain judgments which come in that where they say that if uh, something has happened if where the defendant is actually residing you go there and uh, file a fir or you pro- transfer all the prosecutions here because recently we saw in zubair's case uh, of uh, alt news fame 
that uh, FIRs were being filed in uh, all over uh, UP, in Delhi, in certain other places. The Supreme Court said all FIRs to be transferred to Delhi. In in an earlier time, this would have been only one location. People would have to come to Delhi to file a FIR, but now they can just do it everywhere. So with the digital age coming in, the tools of harassment have become more easier in that sense. Which also brings me to something which I think is the future of sedition. Um, to bring back something which you mentioned earlier. I hope there is no future of sedition. No. <laughs> I, I, I get it, I get it. I'm, I'm just sort of meaning in the sense that uh, in this topic of conversation where the future is, uh, you mentioned that the Supreme Court has stayed, stayed, I'm using air quotes here, stayed the law, but you know, as lawyers, we are still scratching our heads on to exactly what this stay order means. Because as you pointed out, it's not exactly clear what the implications are. But what came through quite clearly to me from the hearings, and for those of you who are interested, Live Law website in India carries very detailed uh, description of the arguments and stuff, what happened in court. You will see that there was a reluctance on the part of the government also to defend this law in a full-throated way. Uh, and especially the Attorney General uh, for India, Mr. K.K. Came about to say, you know, this is. Sorry, can you hear me now? Yeah, okay. Uh, Afra, I'd love to edit this also, please. Uh, the, for, for the Attorney General for India, uh, Mr. K.K. Venugopal, came out and said that this is something that the government wants to have a rethink. And I suppose it was necessitated by the fact that this is currently when we're recording it, the 75th year of India's independence. And it would perhaps be very bad optics uh, to see for the government to be seen to defending such a colonial era law. Uh, and as we have discussed, uh, there is already a provision which punishes you for waging war against India. So armed insurrection is taken care of. Uh, if minor public disorder takes place, there are already provisions in the Indian Penal Code for somebody who incites a riot or who incites violence on a small scale in a city or whatever it is. But sedition and to go back to something which we said and which is the important point to make for our listeners also is effectively defamation of the government it even comes through from the words so to sort of talk about not the future of the sedition uh, itself when we hope it goes away do you think uh, Anshul that it makes sense that the best perhaps cleanest solution is to just repeal 124 capital A just get it out of the statute books and do we see that that will kind of settle the debate about this? Of course. Uh, and interestingly, when the Attorney General uh, tried to say that we need to relook and maybe create guidelines, at the same time, the Solicitor General also appearing for the government said that the Attorney General appearing in his personal capacity as the Attorney okay. General. But the Solicitor General was actually representing the views of the government, mm. saying that let us consider this first. Do not pass any orders. Mm. So there was a open... Uh, the open uh, difference of opinion. I, if if I, it could be a difference of opinion during the court hearings where the solicitor general was in physically in court and the attorney general was appearing through VC before the court, mm -hmm. and the solicitor general clearly said that I am appearing for the government. So <laughs> the attorney general's views may be his own views in that sense. But yeah, coming back to the point, see, on one side you call it Azadi ka Amrit Mahotsav and you want to shed back colonial baggage by renaming roads. I think it's a better way to shed colonial baggages by just doing away with these draconian laws, which are meant for the natives, right? right. And and UAPA is there for good or bad. The UAPA is there. Maybe the UAPA also needs the repeal or watering down. That's a separate question altogether. Or maybe safety walls, because 124A needs to go. I have no doubts about it. 
what can be done after that is a different question altogether while the government does need certain laws to protect national security like i do not envy the government i do not envy the defense ministry or the home ministry they have they are they are they they they, they do need certain provisions to protect the government against certain elements but but is 124 a way to go forward no it is not is the uap a way to go forward i do not know maybe with certain safety valves but like in the defense of india act which is called the rowlet act the black act even that had a safety valve even that said that only when an emergency is notified that the rowlet act will come into play but the uap has no such provisions it's called a it's called a prevent act for prevention of certain something but what you actually punishing is by not giving people bail who are accused of terrorism because accusing people is very easy proving is a difficult and once you accuse someone of something like terrorism then that person may not get bail for 5 6 years now and this is happening that is happening in the elgar parishad case that is happening in the case against the uh, with with regard to the riots against ca Hmm. so does the uap need safety valves yes it does does it need to go away uh, we done away with completely there's a question i'll i i would rather not answer at this time but 124a yes it needs to go thank you anshul and i think that sort of brings us very squarely to perhaps maybe the jumping point for your next book hopefully uh, if you will be working on one which is not the future of sedition but perhaps the way our criminal legislations in some senses um kind of increase police power at the expense of uh, citizens rights and i think this is the deep irony of the conversation that we are having which is that here we are 75 years after independence here we are 72 years after the constitution of india came into effect we are talking about a law which was 70 years old by the time the constitution came into yeah. effect and we are still thinking about how do we get rid of this we haven't actually gotten rid of it and instead what we find and coming to the closing point that you have sort of made this idea that we can empower the police to silence citizens critiques dissent has seeped into other parts of it the unlawful activities prevention act which you mentioned which we see is being used against opponents in civil society and now increasingly even against political opponents i think this is something which perhaps we need to worry about that it is not just section 124 capital a of the indian penal code that may be one manifestation of this deeper problem but perhaps we may need to think uh, about uh, uh, a deeper uh, problem that we see with the nature of the indian state uh, before we close maybe one last thought from you about where do you sort of see this larger reform of indian police and indian criminal legislation going what do you see could fundamentally spark this kind of change yeah because uh, see like like you said it needs to go away even england has done away with the law uh, people who gave us the law have done away with the law but we still have it and police reform in india is actually something which i feel very very strongly about uh, we need to have a uh, have a procedure in place or a system in place which creates accountability today these uh, laws they Uh, they protect public officials from acts which are done to carry out the law but whether it's been done maliciously or whether it is bona fide that is something that the courts essentially do not never go into in nambi narayan's case they went into it they the supreme court gave uh, uh, compensation to nambi narayan 
But when it came to the Akshar Dham accused who acquitted, the Supreme Court refused, saying it will open up, uh, open up floodgates. So you can't have a system where the judges can pick and choose where they want to give com compensation, where they don't want to give compensation. There has to be a statute in place to create such accountability because till the time, there's no accountability. Whatever police reform policy you might bring in, it is not going to work. It is not going to work because the audacity, the brazenness is never going to reduce. Now, uh, there's an example of uh, recent examples now Wherever the police are not following the Arnesh Kumar guidelines, like uh, for the other listeners, Arnesh Kumar guidelines have been framed by the Supreme Court, which say that in cases where the punishment is seven years or below, you have to first give a notice to the accused before you arrest him. Arrest them. And it's given powers to the high courts in various territories that where these guidelines are not being followed, punish the policeman responsible. Punish him for contempt, punish him, send him to prison. And that is what certain high courts have already done. They've sent the, the errant policeman to prison because they've failed to follow those guidelines. So now I, I am personally seeing the sense of fear being created in the policeman's mind that, okay, fine, I need to give a notice first. How, whether they arrest the person or day after that or two days after that is different, but they are giving that notice first. So that sense of fear has to be created. I'm actually calling it a sense of fear because... Our police force is fearless. They know nothing is going to happen to them. That sense of fear has to be brought in by judicial intervention because I do not see the parliament enacting any such statute. Till the time that does not happen, police reforms are not going to happen across the country. That's great. And I think that's the note to end on. How can we turn the fear of the law from the citizens to the police? Yeah. And I yeah. think that's possibly the way that uh, the path of reform lies ahead in India. Uh, but thank you so much, uh, Anshul, for having spared uh, your time for this conversation. Uh, this has been a fascinating discussion. Uh, we have covered quite a bit of ground. And for our listeners, they've only scratched the surface of the depths that uh, Chitranshul's covers. Uh, Chitranshul's, uh, please do pick up his book. It's available on most major platforms. Uh, you will find links in our uh, description. And once again, uh, I'd like to thank you all uh, for having tuned in. Uh, I hope uh, this was an interesting conversation for you. And uh, I'd like you all to encourage you all to stay tuned for more episodes. Uh, on that note, I'd like to thank Chitranshul for joining us. Thank you, guys. And uh, of course, uh, uh, and our production assistant, uh, Afra, who has been uh, patiently helping us with this process. And with that note, uh, I'd like to say bye on behalf of Saryu and me. Bye. Bye-bye.